Hey guys, just a quick heads up that this episode is sponsored by Medtronic Diabetes. Medtronic is a sponsor of this episode, but the thoughts and opinions of guests and hosts are their own. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We are telling the amazing stories of people with diabetes from all over the world. And occasionally, our partnerships and our adventures take us in person to have pretty cool experiences. And today, we're recording live on World Diabetes Day. So you can see both my guest Monique and I have blue sweatshirts on, so a sweater and sweatshirt on to celebrate World Diabetes Day. And we are at Medtronic Diabetes Headquarters in Northridge, California. So Monique LeBaum is my guest. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's so great to meet you in person. So I'm it is. Excited. It's funny. I will, I will say I remember being here five years ago and like crossing paths with you briefly and just being like, hi, like, oh. hi, bye, like along the way. And so I am excited to have you finally on the show and meet in person and like actually get to talk to you. That's so crazy that you remember that. I do not remember I have. That. It, it's also all kind of like flooding, coming flooding back to me today, like being here at Medtronic, like on campus. Cause yeah. it's been a long time, but I've been here quite a few times. So I don't know. I have a weird memory of like, I can't remember where I put my like, glass of water so i'll just grab another one and refill it so there's glasses of water all around my house but i can remember really <laughs> weird strange details from a long time ago wow yeah so monique welcome to the show you live with type 1 diabetes and from our talk and our panel earlier today i realized that you and i have had diabetes for about the same amount of time so why don't you share your diagnosis story and what you remember about it so i was about 14 i had just started high school October of 2006. I think that's also when Nick Jonas was diagnosed. Okay. I've heard of him. Um, yeah. So I basically, for a week, I was really sick. I think I missed like three or four days of school. And by Friday, my dad was like, we're taking you to the doctor. You're either faking or <laughs> there's something's really wrong. So we went to the doctor and a year prior, I had been diagnosed with pneumonia and my lung collapsed. So I was oh, constantly wow. seeing a lung specialist in between all of this. So I went in, saw my normal pediatrician. We kind of went through the normal, these are flu symptoms, things like that. And then she checked my, and I was 70 pounds at the time, I think. So her and my dad went outside and they kind of had the anorexia talk mm. and they were trying to figure out if that was the situation so when they came in both of them were kind of like lecturing me but I just so happened to have seen the lung doctor a week before and I was 80 pounds then so I kind oh. of mentioned that and I was like crying and I was like I'm not doing this like I was fine last week um, and that's kind of what made my doctor decide to test uh, my blood sugar and ketones. And then she looked at my dad and she was like, yeah, take her to the hospital right now. So, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, really, if you hadn't been to the lung specialist, like you as a 14 year old might not have had the you know credibility, like with your doctor and your dad at that time, like obviously they were trying to care for you and figure out what's wrong, but they didn't have all the information. Yeah, exactly. I think that would have been pretty dangerous. I, I know a lot of people have like those crazy blood sugar stories of when they were actually diagnosed like they were in the six or seven hundreds or even higher mine was only 300 at the time so I think even then I probably would not have known for a few more months or so if it wasn't for that drastic weight change in a week so yeah. well and we we know and uh, we talked a lot about on this podcast like avoiding 
going into diabetic ketoacidosis and all of the really drastic symptoms can really help you, especially early on with your diabetes management. And that's why, you know, screening for type one antibodies. And we've talked about research on this podcast. So if you're able to catch the onset of type one diabetes before the diagnosis, before you get into DKA, oftentimes like you're able to be in honeymooning for, you know, period for a little bit longer and it's not as, as bad. So sounds like, you know, that was, that checkup came at like a really good time. Yeah. Yeah. And we've kind of noticed throughout the years that I'm actually really sensitive to things. So the two times that I have been in DKA, the first time my blood sugar was 150 and the second time I was only at 400 and I was very borderline. Jolo actually caught it and is why I went to the hospital. But yeah, I have crazy symptoms at numbers that most people don't. So I think it was, again, a blessing in disguise to kind of see that I was that sensitive that early so that we would pay attention more throughout this journey. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. What do you remember about like the early days, like 2006, you know, I I was diagnosed in 2005 uh, and, you know, my singular diagnosis experience like made it seem like everybody's diagnosis experience was very the same and like was really good and positive. And I've learned over the years that that's not always the case. What do you remember about those early days, like learning to treat type one diabetes and like adjust your lifestyle? Because like that's oftentimes 14, 15 years old, you know, when we look at the bell curve of A1Cs over someone's life, like those are the most difficult years. Yeah. I think I'm kind of the same. I had a really positive experience. The hospital I went to, their children's hospital actually kind of has like a whole little section for diabetes. So I was hospitalized for a week. I had constant training and learning. My parents had to learn a lot. And even once we went home, there were at-home nurses that would come once a week for like two or three months and kind of check in. And I had my first like type one diabetes community at that time. They would have trips for us to go to Disneyland and just different meetups and stuff. So I think my experience was really positive and really great compared to some of the stories I hear where people are like completely alone or they get like a day of training and then they're sent home. So yeah, I think I was really lucky. That is really cool too, to have like a community built in early on. Did you make a friend with diabetes pretty quickly? I did more so a year. So the hospital would make us do shots for a year and then they moved us on to, um, pumps and they kind of did it like a college dorm situation where they checked us into the hospital for three days and it was like four or five of us all getting a pump at the same time so I made friends that way um and then found out one of the girls was actually um at school at my high school's rival (laughs) so it was kind of cool to see that we were both cheerleaders at rival schools and we were both getting a pump at the same time so that was really cool oh that's really cool to meet somebody with similar interests and like you know even have like that in common like oh i know where you go to school yeah yeah that's really cool (laughs) that's also an interesting component of like having a group of people doing it together and i think as i've learned the positive like clinical outcomes of diabetes community it's interesting to see like historically where they're doing that as well. Like, even though it doesn't seem like a community activity, you know, getting everybody on a pump at the same time and learning together, I think it's really normalizing too, because you see other people like you or even in your same age group going through these things together is really cool. Yeah. I think what was even better about it is we weren't all put on the same pump. We had, I think there was two or three of us on the same one. And then the other two were getting something different. So it was really cool to see, 
the different technologies and options we had. Um, so yeah, that was cool too. <laughs> that is cool. I think like also just seeing like how the pumps are different, especially at that time, like most, most pumps were, you know, the same in terms of features, but you know, the way that they label things is different or, you know, it's just nice to see like everybody going through that as well as like, we're here for a technology reason today. You and I are both wearing the same pump, the mini med 780 G system. How long have you been on 780? I think for about five or six months now. Yeah, same for me. Summer 2023, you know, doing the update. Did you do the the update yourself uh, from 770? Yeah, I did. Exactly that. So I think I got the email of, you know, you can kind of sign up early. And I did that on the day that it opened up and... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've never responded to an email so quickly. Yeah, I think too it's it's just an interesting interesting to be on the first wave of software updates to pumps. You know, like historically it's just been like hardware and you had to get a new one to get new features and now just seeing pumps sort of be like phones where you can download a new update and new algorithms is is exciting. I feel like that's definitely what the future is going to be like for diabetes devices. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it definitely lets you upgrade faster than your warranty. So yeah, for sure. Those (laughs) four year warranties are always a thing. (laughs) Yeah. So I definitely want to talk a little bit with you about choices in technology because you in your diabetes toolkit you mentioned him already jolo is your diabetes alert dog and your your care partner and you also wear a cgm and use an automated insulin delivery system so how did you decide that a diabetes alert dog was right for you and you know also like you know you jolo is not your first diabetes alert dog you that's been part of your you know uh, diabetes toolkit for many years so talk about that part of uh, of your diabetes treatment so the decision to get a dog was kind of like a family thing. My f- dad's friend, his daughter, had a diabetic alert dog. So I met her, I met the dog, and we kind of just were like, yeah, that's something that I want. And then when I went off to college is when I really started having my extreme highs and lows. And I think I was woken up in my dorm by paramedics like two or three times my freshman year. My parents even like flew out (laughs) to kind of come because it kept happening and they just wanted to keep an eye out. So it was really an easy decision to decide like, hey, I need something that's going to kind of be there when my parents can't be there. And, you know, I wanted that independence of being able to be on my own without scaring everybody. So that was a big decision. (laughs) For sure. So, you know, you you were talking about, you know, getting the dog and like having, especially early on when there were no sensors. So did that, you mentioned, you know, losing consciousness a couple of times from hypoglycemia. How did that like give you confidence or give your family confidence that, you know, you, you now had a little bit better help, uh, just a little bit more help on managing your diabetes. I think the biggest thing was the independence and my family not freaking out as much. So after those few hospital visits and 911 calls, my dad would actually, if I didn't respond within a certain amount of time, he would send another text like, hey, I'm going to call campus security and send them to your room if you don't respond. Um, and I kind of got sick of that, um, especially being the girl on the the eighth floor that was always having security <laughs> at her door. So yeah, so once I got the diabetic alert dog, my first one, Waimea, it was actually after I graduated, but just not getting those text messages or constant phone calls. And my family's like, Jolo's got it or Waimea's got it. So yeah, that was a, a huge deal for me. 
That's awesome too. And, and Jolo, when, when I met him this morning, he immediately kind of like signaled he knew that I had insulin on me. Talk a little bit about how a diabetes alert dog works. So basically they can detect changes in your glucose, whether it's high or low. They don't really necessarily care which one. They just know that it's moving and it's moving quickly. Even if you're in range, if you drop from, I don't know, say maybe 150 to 130, which is in range for some people within 20 minutes, that's a quick drop. So even though it's still within range, he's still going to alert to let you know, hey, you're dropping and you're dropping quickly. You might not necessarily need a treat for it or anything, but you're aware of it versus things like a sensor might not necessarily catch that because, again, you're still within a certain range. So that's one of the the big things. Well, it's interesting, too, because a sensor... And this is, I think, something when people are learning about the differences between blood glucose and sensor glucose, there is a little bit of a delay Mm -hmm. in the sensor glucose because it's testing a different fluid, the interstitial fluid versus the blood. Yeah. So from a timing perspective, the dog can sense the change a little bit quicker than some of the technology. Yeah. Yeah. He's usually maybe about 10, 15 minutes quicker, um, which is really great because usually by the time the sensor's going off, um, I'm already fixing it. But it's great to have both because Jolo's working in real time, but then with the sensor, I can kind of see, you know, different graphs and different things. So I can take it to my doctor and say, hey, even though Jolo's been alerting nonstop, this is when it's mostly happening and this is where we probably need to do some tweaks and fix things. So um, like you said, it's just another tool (laughs) in my my arsenal to kind of stay alive and keep things going so <laughs> and he's a much more friendly tool than like than a beep or something right yes i definitely tune out alarms and sleep through them and you cannot sleep through a 60 pound dog jumping on your bed so <laughs> he's definitely helped to wake me up in the middle of the night because i kind of just ignore the alarms. so <laughs> yeah i think you know this one of the big changes on 780g the 780g system for me is that I get fewer alerts in the night for calibrations because I was pretty undisciplined with my calibrations. So I would, you know, calibrate at 3 p.m. not thinking that at 3 a.m. it's going to want another blood sugar. So I also would tune out some of those alarms. My wife would like hit me with a pillow or something to try to like get me to to respond. Do you have a story where, you know, maybe you didn't have a sensor on or you were out working uh, or, you know, just out and about and Jolo was able to, you know, alert you and prevent you from a low or, you know, other, any other stories, just kind of Jolo out in the wild? So I actually have two. So the first one that I love to tell about my first service dog, Waimea, we were at Disneyland and Disneyland is notorious for being very service dog friendly so they can get on most rides. But this was a ride that she could not get on and she sat out with a family member. And as soon as I got off the ride, we walked over to them and she pawed me to alert me. So I checked, and I think I was like 90 or so. So I kind of just mentioned, hey, we need to go get some food on our way to our next activity. It took us about maybe five, ten minutes to actually get up. And so I stood up. I wasn't wearing a sensor at the time. And we got ready to walk, and she blocked me. And I was like, okay, maybe Maya needs another break or something. Like, we'll have a sit down and give her some water or something like that. So we tried to walk again, and she completely blocked me again. And she's like, you cannot move. And she kept doing it, 
would not let me move like more than a foot from the bench that we were at. So I finally tested again. And within those 10 minutes, I went from 90 to 60. Wow. So she, yeah, <laughs> no sensor. She kind of basically saved my life in that moment because in the time it took to get to a place to get juice or whatever, I probably would have been a whole lot lower. So yeah, so that's the big one with her that I love to tell. With Jolo, last year I was at my niece's birthday party and all day, I think two days before I was sick, I think I had gotten food poisoning or something. I was okay the next couple days, so I didn't think too much of it. All day I like baked the cake for her birthday party, went to the party, was jumping in the jumper, playing with the kids. Just a busy uh, active day. Yeah, drinking alcohol with family, things like that. And he had been alerting all day long and even though my blood sugar it was a little high but it wasn't like noticeably high so I just was like you know giving him treats and stuff and he would not let up all day long and about 3 a.m that night he was like aggressively going at me and so I got up I went to the restroom and when I came back I was completely red and my like I could see my veins through my skin Mm. and so I did a test I checked for ketones and it was like instantly purple stick. So we went to the hospital and I was borderline DK, like I was Mm. right on the cusp. So yeah, he basically caught it really early. So I didn't go unconscious. I didn't have, you know, super severe DKA symptoms, but we were able to fix it three days in the hospital versus a week. So yeah, that was really his big story. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And you know, you know, just the, to have somebody who's sort of your partner in that too. And you know, you just, you look at Jola too. It's like, you know, my, the inner dog lover in me wants to just give him a big hug, but yeah. he's like, you know, he's working, <laughs> but you know, what he responds to and is like a partner in your diabetes care, I think also probably makes you not feel so alone in those moments at 3am when you're, you know, having to figure out how to get to the hospital and do all those things. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I had just gone to sleep that night, it probably would have been you know, a 911 call versus just a drive to the hospital. And then even there, he would not take his eyes off me. The nurses were like doing their job and he's like staring them down like you do not hurt her. And then once we finally got to a room, he they're not supposed to, but he jumped in the bed and he was like, I'm not leaving mm. unless somebody makes me. So, yeah, he's very protective in that way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned, you know, he's, he's with you all the time. Yeah. Uh, you are an actor and a model and, and sometimes Jolo also is, is a model and, and yeah, an actor. My little Nepo baby. <laughs> yeah. You got to plug him in. Got to get him, you know, got to use some of those benefits. Right. What, what does a day in the life for, for both of you look like? Usually. So I do also work part time. So usually it's waking up, logging into work, checking if there's any auditions or anything like that. And, or if there's actually a shoot or anything that day kind of, navigating both of those yeah and kind of just you know if I have to go into the office he's coming with me if I have to go onto set it's really just making sure that my manager makes it known that he's going to be there making sure that he's protected and then that they're aware that you know he's got to be with me or close by and that someone's paying attention if I can't pay attention to the alerts and things like that so yeah, just really just having a team with me at all times to make sure that he's taken care of and that I'm taken care of. So very cool. So uh, we're here at Medtronic headquarters for World Diabetes Day. 
and we talked uh, earlier on a panel and got to meet a lot of the Medtronic employees. This year you joined as a Medtronic global advocate. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, for you, like when that opportunity came up, why it was important to you and, and, you know, what you hope to accomplish as being part of a Medtronic champion and Medtronic global advocates. I think when I was first diagnosed, I hid having diabetes for a little bit. And then I became, I joined the cheerleading team in high school and I realized very quickly that the more people who knew, the safer I was. Um, Mm, That's really well said. Yeah. So I quickly changed from hiding it to, you know, kind of wearing it proudly and making sure everyone who needed to know knew. And then once that happened, I realized that a lot of people did not know much about diabetes in general, but specifically type one. A lot of people have, you know, that stigma or stereotype around type two, which even that is wrong. So kind of correcting that and kind of making it a big deal and letting people know, you know, that this is what life really is and that a lot of people actually have this and it's a lot more common than you think it is. So kind of just letting people know that you can do anything and kind of just being a face or like a helping to find community is what was really big for me. So when I did get the opportunity um, to be a global ambassador, I jumped at it because I was like, we need more. We need more representation of different people, um, even ethnicity wise within the type one diabetes community. Um, There's not a lot of um, companies that showcase a lot of the different ethnicities or ethnic ambassadors or you know people who are big in the social media area they tend to kind of get the back seat so kind of being asked to be a part of it I was pretty excited to you know do it and then have that representation for a bunch of other people so that other companies can see it and maybe reach out and you know spread awareness so yeah I think we're at a good like even in the time since I've been in the diabetes online community, which is going on 10 years now, it'll be you know 10 years pretty soon. But for the first 10 years of my diabetes, I, I also hit it. I was not, I was focused on living my life uh, and I didn't really want people to judge me or think that I was different. And I thought, I thought that was a disadvantage. So I, I really thought what you said was powerful about, you know, if you own that, it can actually create safety and create more awareness but I think also what's interesting is we're in this time where we're shifting as well, because when I first joined the diabetes online community, it was white or white presenting people that were either represented or were representing diabetes from a marketing perspective. And I think now you and I were talking earlier, it's a bummer that we don't have Eritrea here so that you guys can meet face to face. But I think it's really important for we even said it today, diabetes doesn't pick and choose. And, you know, as we look at populations of diabetes globally, there are more black and brown people with diabetes than there are white people. And I think it's really important that we continue to elevate those voices and those, and, and find those diverse stories because people see themselves when people see themselves represented, I think it creates an opportunity for them to feel like their stories matter or, or, and Hey, I can raise my hand and feel welcome in this community uh, and that is a huge part of advocacy. So I'm, I'm glad that um, we're starting to really awaken, you know, the creativity of these communities because before it just seemed too exclusive. And I think now it's just so important to be more inclusive. Yeah, yeah. I think I've definitely seen the change and I love it. And then 
also even with having a service dog and not even just a diabetic alert dog, but just a service dog in general, there's not a lot of minorities that have service dogs. So even being out in public and people seeing Jolo and they're like, well, what's wrong with you? Why do you need it? Or Mm. they, you know, don't know one about diabetic alert dogs or service dogs outside of guide dogs. And then, you know, seeing someone of color with a service dog also is kind of like eye-opening and people, you know, kind of see things. And I've even encouraged other people who didn't even know it was an option, but they're also minority, they're also type 1 diabetic, to look into it because I think it's such a good tool to have if you're willing to deal with a (laughs) three-year-old at all times. But um, I think it's really important to see someone with a service dog who is a person of color and know that this is an option not only for diabetics or for people who are blind, but also for epilepsy and PTSD. And there's even Jolo's company is training COVID dogs right now. So it's really cool to see what options and how far the dogs can be trained and then seeing, you know, a variety of people with them. So I, I'm resisting making a joke at my dog's expense because <laughs> I just want them to hear this podcast and know that they could have a better life for themselves if they just worked, you yeah. know, if they just got, got their <laughs> act together. But, but I want to, I want to focus on an important thing because you mentioned something when I look at you, if, if I'm a stranger and I'm encountering you for the first time, you don't present as disabled. And that's true for many people with diabetes. So, you know, on the surface level, you can't see all the things that we're balancing in our head, or maybe our technology isn't visible. So do you encounter stigma, uh, with the alert dog? And, and, you know, I think you mentioned like, well, what's wrong with you? Why do you need this dog? And like, what, what could, would you say to someone who's afraid of that stigma? Um, just do it. Eventually people are going to figure it out. Um, it, it does kind of get annoying to kind of have to always educate people. Um, but I think as type one diabetics, we, we kind of deal with that hurdle quite often, especially with like emergency room visits. And like I said, the stigma with type two and things like that. And people just don't get it. I even the DK story with Jolo, I had a nurse look me up and down, see my 400 blood sugar and say, you're probably not in DKA. And even the paramedic looked at her and was like, that's not how that works. Mm -hmm. So I think just mentally saying screw it (laughs) doing it and then it you know if it doesn't necessarily help you it's going to help someone else so kind of just keeping that in mind I think is really important too so it is a tough burden of diabetes to consistently have to fight stigma and balance your blood sugars and advocate for yourself not only with your doctor but sometimes in the emergency room and with strangers and with internet comments Uh, but I think that is the power of community because when you meet somebody with diabetes, they have done those same things yeah. uh, and they know what it's like to feel anxious about being the girl on the eighth floor who security always has to come through, <laughs> you know? Uh, and at the same time, there is when you live out loud and you kind of embrace yourself with all those, all your flaws and all the things you bring into the equation, there's power in that because there's awareness for people to care about you or uh, advocate for your cause. And I think for me, I have long tried to figure out uh, how to involve my friends who don't have diabetes in some of the work that we do at Diabetics Doing Things. And what I found is it's a little bit simpler than I maybe realized is they just don't know what they don't know yeah. uh, and they want to get involved. And, you know, I had to remember that I also didn't really care about diabetes before I was diagnosed. And 
people just need something to attach to. And yeah. it's great to have more important story or more, you know, stories and use the dog as an awareness tool as well. And shout out to Jolo. He, my blood sugar was dropping while we were shooting some content for Medtronic earlier and he was alerting you. And that was really fun. You were like, Hey, who's blood, what's everybody's blood sugar doing? We got to figure out whether he's alerting right correctly or not. And yeah. he, he had me right dialed in. Yeah. And as soon as he figured out that it was you, he kind of went to you. So that was fun to see. But um, I think kind of piggybacking off of all of that and seeing like how you can include the community. I didn't know how many people were affected by seeing me and seeing me with a service dog until my first service dog passed and I was posting about it. And so many people either in person or online reached out and they were like, I started doing research because of you, NY Mayo, or I started to do an application for a diabetic alert dog, or I started to look for a company in my area specifically because of you. And even my doctor, my endocrinologist, when I showed up for the first time without her, one, he cried. Mm. (laughs) And two, he was like, I have suggested a diabetic alert dog to almost half of my patients because of you and because of the bond and the way that I've seen her work. So just kind of seeing that and seeing within those small five years that I had with her, the big impact that we had on so many people without knowing was kind of mind-blowing. So that was why I was like, I definitely got to get another one. So. <laughs> well, it, it's powerful when you see it in action. Yeah. And I have been very affected by Jola today. I have to resist every urge to just squish him because he's so <laughs> sweet. But it, it's cool. And I think that part of the awareness and like representation, like you thought of it, you, you, people don't often talk about diabetic alert dog representation. But when you're exposed to it and you see the benefits and uh, you get to experience it, uh, it makes it more normal. It makes people more curious. And I think that's really powerful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I know you mentioned, uh, you know, you're active on social media. Where can our listeners who want to learn more about you and Jolo find you guys online? Um, right now, mostly it will be Instagram. So my handle is Monique Nicole, um, and Nicole has two E's. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we'll tag you in the show notes. So it'll be okay. easy for people yeah, to yeah. find, but uh, I mean, we do have a TikTok as well, but it's not as active as my Instagram. So most of it you'll find on Instagram. <laughs> well, thank you so much for the time today. It was great to like actually have a conversation with you and meet face to face. We got to have, we got to try this like new setup. You guys didn't see this on, on the recording. I'll talk about it on the Robin Eritrea show when I'm playing like producer and videographer and podcaster. It's a little bit chaotic, but we had a really great time and thank you so much for being part of diabetics. And things. Of course. Thank you for having me. This was great. I'm glad to have met you in person and now I can say I did a podcast. So. Yes, you can. <laughs> we did it. We got proof. Yeah. Right. Thanks guys. <laughs> 